Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zo and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. This week's message is brought to us by our interim senior pastor, Abe Lee. He is preaching from the book of Zephaniah. Uh, I'm Pastor Abe. I am the interim senior pastor here and I just want to remind folks, uh, we are about three quarters of the way through our Minor Prophet sermon series. Uh, Jonah, our worship director, he titled this series, Thus Saith the Lord, which I I love that title. Um, Today, Zephaniah, the prophet we're going to be focusing on, he's number nine of the 12. And then we're going to start with Haggai next week and then Zechariah, and we will finish by looking at Malachi. Now, one of the things I do when I put together uh, my sermon is I, I go through the book, like Zephaniah, as thoroughly as possible. I want to try to get the history, get the context, look at the original language as necessary, read different translations to see what kind of nuances there might be in those translations. And I also try to identify a, a, a key representative verse or passage for the scripture reader. And thank you again, Stacy, for reading today, uh, for that individual to read. And as I was preparing for today's message, it it kind of dawned on me, I don't know why it didn't before, that it's more than likely that many, if not most of you, have not read the book of Zephaniah, and you wouldn't have read it prior to today's message, which is understandable. It's it's a very small book. It's easy to pass over. If you have, awesome. But trying to find a representative passage for this book, when it really needs someone to read all three chapters in full, to get the full impact of this message from Zephaniah, it wasn't an easy task, which is why uh, I had to ask Stacy to read a passage from chapter 1 and a passage from chapter 3. But what I want to do is try to look at the book in its entirety, and I want to start at the very beginning, right? starting with verse 1. In verse 1, this is what is written, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, typically, in Scripture, when you start showing or explaining your lineage, uh, writers will go about two generations. So if I were to use myself, you know, here's Abe, son of John, son of... Actually, I don't know my grandpa's name. I just called him Grandpa in Korean. But anyway, the fact that Zephaniah is going all the way back four generations is significant. And the reason he's doing it is because he's trying to give himself some clout, some street cred, because he points out that he has royal blood in his lineage, Hezekiah. I I was, uh, this is a long time ago, I was sitting at home with my dad, and a former student of his was visiting. She was a missionary serving in Uzbekistan at the time, but she, she was on furlough, in the U.S., and so she was staying with us. And and for some reason, I don't know why, my dad grabbed one of those long calendars from off our wall, the kind you get like at a Korean grocery store, and he tore off a page and started writing on the back of it. And he was drawing our family tree, which I thought was kind of cool. He wasn't doing it for me, though. He was doing it for our missionary friend. And as he's writing all these names, uh, he was writing them in Korean, uh, he started to proudly proudly point out all the folks in our family who uh, had become pastors. Now, here's a pastor, and here's a pastor, here's a pastor. And our missionary friend, she stopped my dad, and she's like, 
and she pointed to one of the names. And she looks at him and goes, really? Is that, is that really him? I turned to her and asked, who? Who, who, is, who are you pointing to? And I, I can't read Korean very well, and so I wasn't sure what was going on. She turned to me and said, your dad's saying that Lee Sigmin is your great-grandfather. I'm like, who, who, who's that? And she smiles and goes, he was the first president of Korea. And I was like, what? My dad's response was great. He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. But here, look, this one became a pastor when he turned 80. He was all excited about that. You know? But the thing is, when I've shared that story with other folks, somehow being the great-grandson of the first president of Korea, it, it gained, I gained credibility. I don't know why, but especially with Korean audiences, it's a whole thing. Even though I don't know who he is, I, I barely know how to say his name. It's, I think in English it's Sigmund Rhee, if you want to look him up. Anyway, Zephaniah, here he is. He's the great-great-grandson. The great-great-grandson of a good and godly king of Judah. And there weren't many, there were many good kings of Judah. There were probably a lot of grandchildren, but he was, a, he, he was not going to miss that point. So he says, I am the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of... Hezekiah. So this prophet was of royal blood. This prophet was related to one of the few kings of Ju Ju Judah that could, that could proclaim that he followed the ways of the Lord. He had, he had some clout, and it added some oomph to the message that he was about to make, bring to them. Another thing to point out, just from this very first verse, is that Josiah was the king. In verse 1, it says, uh, In the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So Zephaniah is taking the time, this warning of judgment coming on the day of the Lord. It's when the people of Judah are actually under the rule of a king that loved God. A king that was striving to draw the, the people of Judah closer to God. When Josiah took over as king, he was about eight years old. Right? You can read more about his whole journey that he took. He, he removed the idols from the land, rebuilding the temple, finding the Torah, and, and crying out to God for repentance when he realized that his nation, the chosen nation, had both ignored and lost the word of God. And you can read more about it in 2 Kings chapter 22. And if you're a history buff, it's, it's a fun and fascinating read, I think. But Josiah was a king who was doing what he could, what he could do to bring the nation of Judah back to God. And he was, he was reestablishing the rules and the rituals that would hopefully lead the people of Judah to reconciliation and redemption. And so just in this first verse, this is the context, this is the backdrop that I'm asking you to keep in mind as we look at the rest of this letter from, or this book from Zephaniah. See, the nation of Judah is going through a time of spiritual revival. The king of this little nation, the king of Judah, is loving God. And, and, and things seem to be going on the, on the right trajectory. Then a person, another person of royal lineage, lineage, Zephaniah, he comes on the scene and proclaims in the midst of this spiritual revival what Stacy read for us in verses 2 and 3. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth, 
This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. God is proclaiming through Zephaniah that he's going to undo creation. He's going to hit control Z on the universe. And we look at through the rest of chapter 1, why? In verse 5, the first half of it, God tells us one of the reasons he's going to redo and undo the universe is this. For those who bow in worship on the rooftop to the stars in the sky. There are two kings that followed Hezekiah, Manasseh and Ammon. So they, they would have been Zephaniah's great-grand-something, like uncle or something. Or you can look at it, Josiah's father and grandfather. They reversed everything Hezekiah had done. And, and they were also really big into worshiping the stars in the sky. They put altars in the temple just so that they could do that. Turning to 2 Kings chapter 21, in uh, verses 3, and five, 3 to 5, it says this. He, in speaking of Manasseh, he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed and reestablished uh, altars for Baal. He made an Asherah, as King Ahab of Israel had done. He also bowed in worship to all the stars in the sky and served them. He built altars in the Lord's temple where the Lord has said, Jerusalem is where I will put my name. He built altars to all the stars in the sky in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. These guys really had a thing about worshiping stars. And I was reading this, to me it sounded a lot like astrology, which was also a really big thing for the Babylonians that would eventually come. And you know, looking up, you know how you get into a rabbit trail, so I started looking up about astrology, and did you, did you know that NASA actually pointed out that the Earth axis has shifted? So the, your astrological sign may not be your sign anymore because the dates are all wrong because the constellations are all shifting around because we've... T- and and uh, it turns out there are not just 12 astrological signs. There, there should be 13 or something like that. Basically, if you're into astrology, just stop it because it's all wrong anyway. Don't build altars to the stars in the sky. But going back to verse 5 in Zephaniah... God is about to press control Z on the universe because of those who bow in worship on the rooftops to the stars in the sky. And he's also going to do that because of those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom. Now, there's a little bit of confusion uh, about this name, Milcom, or Milcom. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. But not sure who this person, or if it's a person, who they were, or what this is referencing. It could be uh, an Assyrian or Ammonite god, or it could be translated into their king, which would have been a reference to another pagan god, uh, who, who would have been seen like a king-like figure like Baal or, or Molech. I don't know, but it's not God. Regardless of who or what Milcom is in reference to, it would seem that for many, the transformation of the nation of Judah, led by this good king Josiah, was only skin deep. 
the results of a very of the King Josiah's very real transformation meant that the, the nation would see change. See, the, the temple was being rebuilt, the holy days were being kept holy, good things were happening to the people, but good things were not happening in the people. So they would go and do their Sabbath thing, they would celebrate Shabbat on Friday night, they'd go do their holy holidays, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, but then they would turn around and they would engage the temple prostitute at Baal's temple or sacrifice children at Moloch's place. For the nation as a whole, what you likely saw was, was a moral reformation, not a spiritual transformation. What you probably saw was a people willing to obey the rules but could care less about loving the ruler. Because all Josiah could do as a king was to bend the hearts to follow God, but he couldn't melt their hearts to love God. And what God desires for us is spiritual transformation, not merely moral reformation. And the means of spiritual transformation, the ability to look at the rules ruler over the rules, to, to have a melted heart instead of just a bent heart is the Messiah. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we're going to see more of that in chapter 3. I want to continue on to verse 6. Verse 6 says this, and those who turn back from following the Lord, speaking of why he's going to undo the creation, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. In verses 8 to 9, it says, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, the king's sons, all who are dressed in foreign clothing. On that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. When God reverses creation, those who do not seek God, those who follow the ways of the pagan kings and, and the nations, they're not going to do well on the day of the Lord. When Zephaniah writes, all who are dressed in foreign clothing. Basically what he's saying is, what he's referring to is those who decide to ignore their inherited heavenly kingdom culture, their status as the beloved of God, and to take on the traditions of the world. The people of Israel, people of Judah, decide that they would rather forget the call to act justly for the sake of the poor and the voiceless. They decide to forget the call to love like God loved by showing mercy to those who are struggling. They decide to forget the call to walk humbly with God. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, had decided they would rather look like the world and wear foreign attire than to wear the character that God had given them. The other confusing passage here is punish those who skip over the threshold, which sounds odd. I'm pretty sure the reference here is to something that happened in 1 Samuel chapter 5. And in 1 Samuel chapter 5, at that time, it was about the Philistines who had defeated Israel. And they took the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and, and uh, they put it inside their own temple to their uh, god, Dagon. The day after they put that uh, Ark of the Covenant in that temple next to the statue of Dagon, the statue was all busted up. It fell over the head and the hands broke off. And they fell and lay on the threshold, the entrance of the temple. So, so those people who were following Dagon, they refused to step on the threshold when entering their temple. And uh, this tradition apparently went on to be taken on by other idol-worshipping traditions. 
So the threshold, they saw it as a place where demons and evil things live, so you got to avoid stepping on it. But as Christians, as followers of the one and only true God, who is absolutely everywhere, it's a ridiculous restriction, and one we don't have to worry about. There's another group that I want to mention and point out. It's in verse 12. Verse 12, it says this, And at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will do nothing. The Lord will not do good or evil. Now, I have to say, when I read this passage, I, have a, I feel like this is a very pervasive uh, sentiment in today's culture. You know, I, I'm sure there are many of you who know someone that will say something like, yeah, maybe there's a God uh, somewhere, but I don't know who he or she is, and I'm not sure that I even care or that they care. Or, you know, you might have a friend who has a very laissez-faire attitude about God who call themselves maybe agnostic, who believe that God, uh, there might be a God, but if there is one, that in entity is hands-off. God set the world a spinning and then walked away because God just doesn't care. The Lord will do nothing. The Lord will not do good or evil. But the reality is this. The reality of the Bible shows us is that God is a God who desperately cares, who is jealous for those created in his image. He is wanting, he is so desiring us to get everything he created and to enjoy being in his presence. Because we know God is patient and he's slow to anger, but he's also totally fair and just. He is, he's someone that gives us every possible opportunity, time, years, decades, who gives us every possible sign, the splitting of the Red Sea, the crumbling of the walls of Jericho, making the blind see, making the lame walk who gives us his amazing, the most amazing grace through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible points us to a God who desperately cares for, who desperately loves his creation and hopes that his creation will love him. This is the warning of judgment on the day of the Lord. This warning of judgment on the day of the Lord was and is for those who decide that rather than worship and obey and be spiritually transformed by the one and only true God, those who would rather to follow the, the whims and the will of the world to, to put themselves over God, to let humanity dictate their values, this is a warning of judgment on the day of the Lord for them. And this was and is a prophetic word for the beloved of God. And I say intentionally was and is because prophecy from the biblical perspective will typically have a near and a far component. In other words, when you read prophecies like the one Zephaniah uh, shared in his book, it, uh, let me just read, for example, specifically verse 7. He says, be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. When you read a prophetic word like this, it's pointing to the near future, which is Babylon that eventually came against Israel and consumed them, while simultaneously pointing to the far future, to the final day of judgment, judgment when our Savior returns to bring his beloved home. In the rest of chapter 1 and going into chapter 2, Zephaniah talks in much more detail about for whom the day of the Lord is not going to be a good day. 
He talks in more detail about how the day of, of wrath will come down on everyone who refuses to bow to the true king. And it's, just, it's not just the people of Israel. It's not just the people of Judah that this is replying to. It's to the four corners of the world. A warning to all the nations. In the north, Assyria in chapter 2, verse 13. In the south, Cush or Ethiopia in chapter 2, verse 12. To the east, it's uh, uh, Moab in chapter 2, verse 8. And, and to the west, it's the uh, Cherethites in chapter 2, verse 5. And then we come to chapter 3 in verses 1 and 2. And there it says this. It says, Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. She has not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. The warning is to all who refuse to obey the word of God, to, who refuse to trust God, who, who refuse to draw near to God. But with this warning, as with the other prophets, comes hope. It's a hope that's based on God's grace, on God's mercy. It's a call to respond to that grace and that mercy and that love. In chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples, so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single person, purpose. In other words, God does it. I will. The second half of verse 11 says this, For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Again, I will. God does it. Verse 12, I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. God does it. That's the hope. I, I, I love our church's mission statement. It says that we exist to see the gospel transform people into spirit-filled disciples who know that they are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. Our ability to follow the word of God, to trust God, to draw near to God, it is because of Christ alone. The near and the far promise to Judah of hope was because of God alone. Because God has done the work. I will restore the meek. I will restore the humble. I will restore worship. My time is almost up. So I want to just point out a few observations regarding what our response to, to God's mercy and grace could or should be. Because I think Zephaniah is preaching, well, I, I think he is preaching words of warning during a time of essentially spiritual revival under a godly king, King Josiah. And Zephaniah is telling the people in Judah, hey, don't quit. You have to seek God alone. Don't start mixing up all these other traditions and rituals into your faith in God. Don't distort the true and pure worship of Yahweh. Zephaniah was praying for revival during a period of revival. Now, unfortunately, the plan God desired, it didn't change the trajectory for the nation. They still came under the rule of Babylon eventually because they didn't really pay attention. But I know that we can still learn from the pattern and the process that Zephaniah spells out in this book. And the first one is this. It's in verse 7, chapter 1. It says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Be silent. Be still. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak so you can hear God whispering 
to you. Sometimes it'll be directly, and maybe sometimes it's going to be through the people around you. But stop drowning out God's voice with your own. Second, seek God by seeking righteousness and living humble lives. Chapter 2, verse 3, this is what it says. It says, seek the Lord, all you humble on the earth, who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be concealed on the day in the Lord's anger. And this first reminds me of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. Now, a few weeks ago, we, we talked about Micah, and we looked at the prophet Micah's words, and he spoke in more detail about how God has already shown us what it means to seek him, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So we're called to be silent, so we don't drown out God speaking to us. We're called to seek the Lord by seeking to be righteous and humble. And the last one that I want to mention here is the third one, is to wait. Verse 8 in chapter 3 says, Therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration. Until the day I rise up for plunder, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, in order to pour out my indignation on them, all my burning anger, for the whole earth will be jealous consumed by the fire of my jealousy. I want you to know this. I've said it before. God's timing is perfect. It's never early, never late. We spoke to this in, in Nahum. Nahum, the prophet, we looked at a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago. We're, we're called to wait. To wait for the Savior to come. They were called to wait for the Savior to come. And eventually they would learn it was Jesus. We are called to wait for our Savior to return. I want to read to you from chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Uh, and Jonah and the team can come on up. I want to wrap up with this passage. It says here in verse 12, I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they'll take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. This is the promise. This is the promise we have hope in. This is, this is what we're striving for. This is a description of the upside-down kingdom that we're going to be able to party about, as, as Stacy read for us. Because heaven is for the meek. Heaven is for the humble. Heaven is for the voiceless. He's, it's for the downtrodden, the refugee, the abused, the powerless, the, the remnant. Heaven is for the ones who seek not merely moral reformation, seek true spiritual transformation because together by God's grace alone through the work of Christ alone in his crucifixion and his resurrection because of this we're going to be able to join together with the meek and the humble we're going to be able to take refuge together in the name of the Lord where there will be no more weeping there's going to be no more sorrow no more pain where we're going to be able to join in the celebration with the daughters of Zion and the daughters of Jerusalem. Will you pray with me as we close out today? Thank you for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit our website at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.